Uh, some of you may have noticed over the last few weeks that uh, Mark and Diane Hensler, our own missionaries to uh, the country of Greece, uh, have been with us, and uh, it, it dawned on me uh, a week or so ago. I called Pastor Paul and said, man, we, I haven't been thinking about this. I'm not sure we knew you guys were going to be here. I'm not sure you knew you were going to be here, right? And uh, we said, man, we, we've got to get them before our people so that they can get an update. Uh, there's been change in their ministry, if you've been following that over the last two to three years. And uh, so we're thrilled that they're able to be here and uh, share with you the ministry that God has given to them. We're, we're a part of that, folks. We, we give, yes, obviously, but we pray. We're involved. Um, they're like staff people yeah. for Heritage a lot of miles away and over a lot of water and all the rest of that but part of the ministry of Heritage Baptist Church, and we're glad to have them. So uh, we've asked Mark if he would come and share. And Diane, would you would you let everybody see you? Just wave. and uh, Yeah, there you go. That way Mark won't to have to embarrass. There. Yeah. She wants to get up there. What's that? She wants to get up she there. Wants to get, well, yeah. she can come. Yeah. That's up to right. you, man. Uh, but Mark and Diane are here, and Mark is going to share with us, and we're glad to have you. God bless you as you come. <laughs> wow, my son-in-law gets points for that. Thank you. <laughs> well, I knew she'd want to come up, so. Good morning, Clark Summit. Good morning, Heritage Baptist Church. And welcome to our life. You make the best plans you can, and then something happens, and you roll with it. So I just did that to the sound people. They didn't know I was going to do this. So this is, this is how it rolls. Um, it's really good to be here. We have loved being here, obviously, with our family um, over the holidays, but you are our family, too. Um, we moved to Clark Summit in 1971. I was nine years old, and we grew up through that. Uh, I grew up here at Heritage Baptist Church and then went to college, and so it was a long time um, before the Lord moved us on, married to another location. So I just always love coming back here and seeing you and meeting the new people. Um, God has taken this Clark Summit girl who would have been happy to stay in Clark Summit um, on quite a, a, a journey in life, and it has been such a great adventure. Um, it has not been easy, but the Lord just always is sufficient. Um, if anybody has any questions on how to pack suitcases and go from 70-pound ones to 50-pound ones to 40 to the nice little European 17 ones, um, I can help you with that. And I can also help you learn, um, i give you some hints. I haven't mastered it, but I can give you some hints on um, living very small and very mobile. So it's been a, a fun adventure doing that. But God has allowed us to meet and see so many people and see what he is doing in the world. And just while we were singing here and um, just thinking about this worship, whenever you meet every morning, realize that you are one hour in a full 24 hours of services starting around the world with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is just so exciting. By the time, um, by the time we get up, our, our church in Greece is like finishing up its day. But just think of it in heaven. You know, God's getting these um, praise services and worship services from around the world 24 hours every Sunday. 
Um, I just think that's really exciting. So I want to thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. Thank you for loving, um, always caring for our family. Um, it means a lot to us. It's huge for us to be able to be um, overseas and know that there's a church family for our kids, for our parents. So thank you so much, Heritage Baptist Church, not just for us, but for every uh, missionary or every, every person you have sent out and continue to love and pray for. So thank you very much. Thank you. I could listen to her all day. Well, well, I do. Okay. Jeff, I just blew it here. Testing one, two, three. Happy New Year. I hope your New Year is uh, going well for you. I love the song, Death Was Arrested, and my life has begun, and we have a new life, and God is a God of new beginnings, and that's pretty exciting about God. He's not so much a God of second chances as just new beginnings, and we start fresh every day. We can fall to our knees and start fresh and have a great and exciting relationship with Him. Um, it used to be quite common for people to pick out sort of a verse of the year. Has anyone done that? Like, like you want your theme verse for this year? Okay, let me introduce a new concept to you. <laughs> you did? Oh, I thought you were raising your hand. So, um, it's kind of fun to just have a theme verse for the year. And uh, mine for this year, I started a little early, uh, Matthew 9, uh, 37, 38. I'm praying that the Lord of harvest would send more laborers out, but particularly in the area that we work in, in uh, all across Europe, our ministry is actually quite a bit broader than just Greece. And uh, so we work with missionaries in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, and our national partners there. And then recently we've been getting more involved with missionaries in Western Europe. And my special prayer is that God would not just raise up laborers, you know, out of this country to go, but that in our churches that we've started, our national partners, that God would raise up Spaniards and Frenchmen and Italians and Greeks and Romanians and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to build his church. And so that's what I have. And maybe you just might want to take some time to think about a verse of Scripture that's kind of going to be your, your, your north, uh, your, your, your compass to go for. Um, what I'd like to talk about this morning is this verse. Maybe this wouldn't be your theme verse for the year. Um, and maybe it sounds kind of funny to you. And no, I didn't make a mistake uh, when I put this up. But Paul, at the end of his life, is really involved in the mentoring process. He's pouring into young men. He believes in that God is uh, using young men, that the same Holy Spirit that was in him and allowed him to do uh, just amazing things and being fruitful in ministry, um, he's excited about uh, seeing that happen in young people. And he closes out a book uh, with these words, As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Isn't that a great verse? I mean, that just practically preaches itself, doesn't it, Glenn? I mean, just the outline is just laid right out. Why, do you wonder why God puts some of these things and allows them in the Scripture? These are little details um, that they're like invisible words. When we do our Bible reading, we just slide right past them, right? 
to, uh, to sort of get to the gems and the good stuff. And the gems and the good stuff are there, but let me assure you, every detail in Scripture is alive with exciting uh, information for us. And at the very least, when we read people's names like this or places uh, that we don't know these people, we don't know these places, at the very least, it's a great reminder that this is a real book. The Scriptures are real, real stories about real people in real places, just like you and just like me. And if, if we capture nothing else, we read a verse like this, that. Um, these are just great reminders that, that it's not the, the, these New Testament epistles, especially, they're not just lofty theological messages, which they are, but they're real life and real people and, and and, and people who have friends and co-workers and how to live life that way. So I, I just want to dig a little bit into this detail because Glenn said, tell us what you're learning. And so this is a thing that I've learned this fall and I've shared with, uh, with others. I just want to share it with you. And I want to kind of land on, um, Paul says, come and spend the winter with me at Nicopolis. I don't know what image that gets in your mind. Maybe a cabin up in the mountains in the snow, and Paul and Titus are now going to be drinking hot chocolate by the fire there in Nicopolis. I don't know what kind of image that might uh, bring up in your mind, but that's not what he means by spending the winter in Nicopolis. Nicopolis is in Greece, where we've sort of landed for the last uh, three years. We left Latin America, 30 years plus of ministry in Latin America, to do a special project uh, in Greece and in around Greece and to be working with people in Muslim background countries. And uh, we've, we've landed there, um, and, and God has just sort of exploded a wide ministry for us. As you know, we were not able to get our resident visas for uh, Greece, and so we're legally... We are residents of Italy, and we have an apartment in Italy uh, to be residents there. And uh, that apartment is empty most of the time. We lend it out to people who want to come. So there's an empty apartment there, Pastor, for you to go. Uh, send your pastor to Italy. Yeah. But invite him to come back, too. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we're, we're in Greece, and uh, God has given us some, some really uh, wonderful ministry there. Uh, our our probably our main ministry in Greece, is to assist Greeks to do church planting. And so we're investing our life in young uh, Greeks and their wives. Diane does mentoring uh, with women uh, to help Greeks uh, plant churches. They have been distributing Bibles for 12 years now. Every summer we'll distribute about 100,000 Bibles, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, Operation Joshua, the project is with the idea of putting a Bible in every home in rural Greece. Every, uh, rural Greece meaning not Athens and not Thessalonica. So besides those two cities, uh, and who knows what the future may hold, but everywhere else, in every town, every village, every small city, we, we, we put a New Testament at the front door. That's been happening for 12 years, and so we have a great vision to follow that up with church planting and the preparation for that. We will finish that project in about three years. And so we are master planning what happens next. What will we do next with all the energy? We have about 350 people 
that come from all around the world every year to distribute Bibles. And so how can we partner with the Greeks that are there to do uh, church planting? So I work with Jonathan McCreese, the president of Hellenic Ministries, to, and we're just mapping that out. So pray for our strategy and that God would make strategy reality because it's in tune with what he wants to do uh, in the scriptures. And then God has opened the door for us to work with MBBs. If you're not familiar with the term MBB, that stands for Muslim Background Believers. There have been thousands and thousands and of hundreds of thousands of refugees that have poured into Europe and the corridor starts uh, as, they, as they make it to Turkey, they cross the Aegean Sea and get to Greece. And so for about 12 years, Hellenic Ministry has been working with refugees, so they were the experts when the crisis came about four years ago. Uh, they were the experts to help other Christian ministries know what to do to receive uh, uh, immigrants, Muslim people who are coming to Europe, how to share Christ's love, how to meet some basic needs, and then to tell them why we're doing that, to show the love of Christ. So because they've been doing this for, for several years, many years now, uh, young men, young women have come to Christ and are growing in Christ. And so the next step that they wanted to do was to have a Bible institute for Muslim background believers. And so we're very excited about that. And they approached me and said, would you be able to help us teaching at the Bible Institute? I said, tell me more about it. They said, well, we want to take these Muslim background guys who are just really growing in the Lord. We not only want to give them a Bible Institute education, but we want to train them so that they can be the teachers in the Bible Institute. I said, 2 Timothy 2.2, I'm all in with that. I want to help you guys. So it's been a real joy of my life these last three years to be working in the discipleship training center, uh, working with Persians, that's Farsi-speaking people that come out of Afghanistan and Iran. And every semester when I talk to my students, I say, how many of you have been in Christ for over two years? And not a single one of them raises their hand. So two years ago, all of my students were Muslim. And it's a very exciting to teach a class like that. You wouldn't believe, Pastor Glenn, the questions they ask. And I didn't get those questions in Bible school. You know, they didn't prepare me for, for the, the, the whole different worldview that they're coming out of. And it's a great, it's great fun to do that. And now we're encouraging and training these men to do church planning in the refugee camps in Greece. There are about 15 major refugee camps in Greece, and we're in two of them now. Uh, starting churches, and so we're pretty excited about that. And then another one of our ministries is working with the Greek Bible College. It's the only evangelical Bible school in Greece. And uh, they serve all of the evangelical denominations there. And they have a one-year program in English. So I'm not seeing a lot of high schoolers right here, but high schoolers, you can do your gap year in Greece, and uh, you will visit all the biblical sites in Greece, and it's, it's a very fun thing to do. And I was asked this fall to teach a class that I'd never taught before, and I thought it was going to be like, oh man, I don't want to teach that, I don't know anything about it, and it turned out to be a super exciting class. And so I want to take it a little bit to my class on New Testament backgrounds this morning. <coughs> That's 
the information that begins sort of to prepare us for reading the book of Matthew, right? How do we get into that? And so politically and in the religious scene and geographically, what all is happening behind the New Testament so that when we read names of people and places, uh, we, we get a better grasp on the world that they live in. And really, the only way to understand the Bible world as we read it is to put ourselves in the sandals of the people that live there and understand who, who are people who are important to them and who, what were places that were important to them. What were the household names of places and people then? I wonder if anybody might recognize, who, who might this be, class? Anybody want to just throw it out? Think, who, who might that be? Caesar Augustus, oh my word. Wow, this is a class of geniuses. You must be brilliant, Glenn, because I can't teach these people anything. They already know it. This, that's wonderful. Yes, it's Caesar Augustus. And I, I just, in my class, I said to the dean, well, how do I teach a class with New Testament background? He says, well, the important people. So I said, well, how do I know who the important people are? He says, well, you'll, you just study it. So I picked out seven guys. Seven guys that I thought were really important to know, part of the background of the New Testament. And uh, interestingly enough, I think this guy is probably the most influential historical figure in the background of the New Testament. He's only mentioned once in the whole New Testament. He dies when Jesus is a teenager, but he sets everything up for the background of the New Testament. When Julius Caesar died... Um, he named in his will Caesar Augustus as his heir and his son in his last will and testament. See, uh, Octavian was his name. He was only 18 years old when he became heir to what Julius Caesar had in his money, in his lands, and his ability to rule the Roman Empire. Um, he was a Roman general. And when Julius Caesar was assassinated, the Republic named a triumvirate, the second triumvirate. So three guys to rule the Roman Republic. How do you think that well when they said, how, how well do you think that went when they said, you three guys rule the Republic? They were pretty chummy and they, led, they said, oh yeah, you can, no, you should be able to do this. No, you should have power over this. They, were, they worked together well as a team. Do you think they did? No, good, thank you. Thank you for being such skeptics. No, they did not play well together. And so they eliminated, eliminated, eliminated uh, Lepidus quickly uh, out of the triumvirate. That left two guys, Octavian and uh, Mark Anthony. You've heard of Mark Anthony, right? Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. So what happened basically was that Octavian took the east, okay, and uh, Mark Anthony took the west of the Republic, and he joined forces with uh, Cleopatra down in Egypt. Now, uh, Octavian, he was young, so he's ambitious, and he's a general, and he's ready to go to work, and he's ready to conquer and take control, but Mark Anthony now, he's, he's had a full um, vocation of being a general, and he's tired, you know. I mean, you can only be out on the battlefield so long. He wants to, he finds a nice girl down in Egypt, and he wants to settle down. So he's down there in Egypt, and Octavian is back in Rome, and so he not only uses his military prowess, but he's a politician. He's a, he's a manipulator. I don't know if those are synonymous terms, but he's a politician and a manipulator. And he convinces the Senate that 
Mark Anthony, he's a traitor. He doesn't care about you anymore. He's down there in Egypt. You know, he's more Egyptian than Roman now. And he begins to sway, you know, the whole, the whole city of Rome, the rulers, the Senate there, that, that uh, Mark Anthony is a bad guy. So they have to face off, and they face off in the most famous, uh, the most important battle of the Roman Republic, the final war of the Roman Republic. Rome was in shambles. They were having all kinds of civil wars. They had just killed Julius Caesar, and it was a mess. And so... Octavian wants to consolidate everything under him, of course. And so that Mark Anthony and Octavian meet on the battlefield. Mark Anthony, of course, is partnered up with Cleopatra. Anybody recognize this picture? Huh? I can tell by your laughter you do. The very, very famous uh, movie um, about Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. And um, I bet you never thought you'd see a picture of Elizabeth Taylor in church. Uh, but there she is with Richard Burton. The, has anyone seen that movie, Cleopatra? The, four and a half hours. You should just get a medal for watching it. <laughs> Believe it or not, I came back on the plane um, from Europe, and I had the four and a half hours. And on the, on the uh, plane, they were showing the movie, uh, this movie, Mark Anthony Cleopatra. So I watched the whole thing, oh my word. The most expensive, in dollars for the time, the most expensive Hollywood movie ever made. And so we imagine Cleopatra, okay, as probably very beautiful, but we actually have sort of a picture of the real Cleopatra. And so this is money that was made, uh, minted, at the time of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. So that's Mark Anthony on the left. And that's the beautiful Cleopatra on the right. Isn't she just beautiful? I mean, I, I don't know, but I sort of think of somebody else when I see Cleopatra. I just, it just puts me in mind of somebody else. So I don't know how beautiful she, she really was. But anyway, so Cleopatra and Mark Anthony, they come up out of Egypt, up into Greece, to a place um, that today is called Nicopolis. It was not Nicopolis then. It was just a big bay. Um, Octavian brings his forces down. And for about a year and a half, they sit there with all their ships. Mark Anthony is inside this beautiful bay. The calm waters is there. Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Cleopatra has her golden barge where she keep all the gold to pay her soldiers. She had that in there. And then outside of the bay was Octavian with all his ships. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they had camps ready, and Octavian had a beautiful camp up on a hill. He could look down and see everything. Mark Anthony got stuck with a lousy sight right down in a very marshy area. And so the, they were having problems with mosquitoes and everything. They finally decided... So Mark Anthony had the advantage he could go out and decide when the battle would take place. They go out in their ships. Mark Anthony has these big, huge Roman ships. The idea of a naval battle in those days would have these big battering rams in front. And you just, you tried to maneuver your ship so you could catch the guy on the side and batter him in the side. Bash a hole in him. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Bash a hole in the ship and sink the ship. Well, Octavian had the smaller ships, which you'd think would be a disadvantage. But what happened was, because he had the smaller ships, he could whip around more quickly and ram into the size of uh, Mark Anthony's bigger ships. When Cleopatra saw that they were losing the battle, she took off with her golden barge and slipped out uh, to, to Egypt. 
Then Mark Anthony, when he saw, my, where's my girlfriend going with all the money, you know? So he takes off after, and the battle ends in four hours. Land battles can last years, right? But a naval battle is very quick. In four hours, everything was said and done. Uh, Octavian goes victorious back to Rome. He is able to completely consolidate now the Roman Republic as he defeats Mark Anthony at the Battle of Actium. When he gets back to the Senate, they name him Caesar Augustus, the great one. You are Caesar like Julius, and you are the great one. And he, uh, Octavian didn't say, uh, no, no, please, don't give me that great title. He said, thank you very much, right? And uh, to remember his great uh, battle, uh, he started, he, he built a new city on that site, and the city was named Nicopolis. In Greek, Nike is, who knows? Anybody? Anybody wearing Nikes? Anybody wearing Nike? Anything? There you go, right there. Higher, because over on the other side, they can't see it. All right. Nike means victory. All right? It should, right? If you're going to wear the shoes, a man of victory. And polis means city. So you got Nicopolis, the city of victory. And uh, Octavian wanted to make sure that nobody forgot that he was the one who won this great battle. And you can go to Nicopolis today. The modern city of Preveza is there right on the bay. It's a, it's a great town. And we used that as a base this past August for distributing Bibles. And so we were able to go to this site. And uh, Diane and I were able to visit the ancient city of Nicopolis, built by um, Caesar Augustus. And then some of the buildings were actually built by Herod the Great, so he was a fantastic ar 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 architect. He was a horrible person, but he was a great architect. And uh, he built some of the, some of the uh, buildings there. And one of the other very interesting things that Octavian does as the new emperor is that he has an empire-wide or many empire-wide censuses. And one of those, of course, is actually mentioned in the Bible. Now, the kings in the ancient world uh, had censuses for two big reasons. Always for two reasons. You wanted to know how many people you were ruining, ru ru ruining, no, ruling. It might have been both, but how many people you're ruling. You have no, you know, you have to have a census committee, no internet studies or anything like that. So it was a tedious process to name all the people that you're ruling in your country or your empire, whatever the case may be. And you have two reasons that you want to do that. The first one is power and the second one's money. It's always, for politics, it's always about the power and the money. You want to know how many people are, 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 are under your rule because you want to know how, how big of an army that you can raise up. I want to know how many men, how many women, how many men over, you know, 17 and under, let's say, 40. I, I want to know that, so I want to be able to raise a big army. So it's all about the power. And secondly, I want to know about how much money I can raise in taxes, Right? So I know everywhere, how many people are here, so how much should I be able to get out of this province, this town, this city, how much money I can get. You may have read the story of David back in the Old Testament in the books of Samuel and Chronicles, how he raised the census, and then God is, is angry with him for doing that and punishes him for doing that. And you may have thought, why? Why would get God get mad about having a census? Did anybody, has anybody wondered why did God get mad at David for having a census? 
Yeah, I have a few honest sinners here. Thank you. I wondered that too. And it's okay to ask those questions. It's good to ask those questions. Well, when you understand what a census is for, it's all clear. The census is to know how big of an army you can raise and how much money you could get. And David was leading God's kingdom, not his kingdom. And God had given him the promises that I will be with you and I will protect you. Don't worry about how many soldiers you have. I will protect you. And don't worry about how, you'll, how your needs will be met and what you'll eat and what you'll drink and how, how, everything, you know, how, 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 how you'll have the provisions for everything you need. I'll take care of you. So David's taking the sun, census was an act of unbelief. I don't believe, God, that you can take care of me, and I don't believe, God, that you can provide for the needs of the people that I am ru ruling. And so God punished him for that to show him that, that you need to trust in me. And, you, and it was just very foolish as a king for him to do that. Anyway, getting back to my story, Augustus has a worldwide census, empire-wide census, by the way, when, when the census named Octavian as Caesar Augustus, that was the official beginning of the Roman Empire. So Julius Caesar was not over the Roman Empire, he was over the Roman Republic. But, but uh, Octavian, he wanted it all. He wanted to be Caesar Augustus, he wanted to be the ruler, and now everything becomes an empire. And uh, that empire is named uh, in the New Testament, but we sort of have a problem. As the pages of the New Testament open, it opens with a problem because everything in the Old Testament is leading up to the coming of Jesus. Everything, all of over 300 prophecies lead to the coming of Messiah, God the Son, coming to be on earth, generating great excitement. They were excited about Jesus coming. The pages of the New Testament open. The faithful ones are waiting for Jesus to come. I hope you're waiting for Jesus to come too because he's coming back. But there was a problem. The prophecies had said, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, to be considered as anything special, for out of you will come forth for me, one who's to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth, so he's not just a regular king, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So we have an eternal king, and he's going to be coming out of Bethlehem, Ephrata. The angel visits uh, Mary, the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Mary is conceived to have the Messiah, and everything is set up. But wait, our geography is wrong. Because where are Joseph and Mary? They're up in, in uh, Galilee. They're up in Nazareth. And she's nine months pregnant. And the doctor isn't signing off for her to fly at nine months pregnancy. And she's got everything ready. She's got her doula ready. You know, she's got her midwives ready. All the women in Bethlehem are ready to take care of this thing. And suddenly there's a decree from Rome that says you have to go back to your family town, to where you were born for the census. Oh, my word. So in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And all went to be registered, each to their own town. So Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, 
who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Galatians says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman and born under the law. God orchestrated everything and used this, this ambitious, fighting emperor who had probably no concept, idea of the Jewish prophecies of Messiah and he was going about his business in his own self-centered way, ruling an empire. And God used him like a little pawn to move him to fulfill the prophecies of Scripture. So Jesus is born under the law. Of course, he's born under Torah, Jewish law. And he completely fulfills Jewish law in his life because he is without sin. And he comes to fulfill the law so that in him we can have his righteousness. But I think Paul, being a Roman citizen, probably also thought about, you know, he really, he really was born under Roman law as well. God had orchestrated everything through Caesar Augustus so that when Messiah was born, it was exactly the right time. Under Caesar Augustus, um, he instituted what's called, what was called Pax Romana. That's a Latin term meaning Roman peace, obviously, Roman peace. So that meant they turned all of these Roman civil wars and all of the people that they conquered were fighting amongst each other and immediately they had peace. It was imposed by the boot of the Roman soldiers, of course, but it was peace. There were people that Rome conquered that gladly turned themselves over to Rome because they said, we're fighting each other too much. And we know that if Rome takes us over, they will, have, they, will, they, will, they will create a situation of peace. We'll be able to go back to our farms and farm. We'll be able to go back to our shops and, begin, and go back to making shoes and whatever we do. And life will be at peace. And so they welcomed Caesar Augustus as an emperor in many places, and uh, that peace was created. And so Pax Romana it was all over what we would be familiar with as sort of the, the New Testament world. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, if you still carry a Bible, in the back there's maps. The New Testament world looks just like this. It coincides right with the Roman, Roman world. And in Pax Romana, the peace that was created was um, one of the things that he did was he established Roman roads. Oh, there had been roads before, important roads, but it was a whole new kind of interstate highway systems. He built roads that had, uh, or orchestrated the building of, I don't think he was out there with a pick and shovel, but he built roads that were seven layers deep. So they were, they were solid uh, roads that didn't wash away in storms. And the, one of the big things that, it, that they did was they had roads in straight lines. That had never been done before. Roads kind of always followed the curves of the mountains and the valleys. And he wanted his soldiers to get anywhere as fast as possible. So he built long, straight roads that only turned when they had to and when they needed to. And over the valleys, he made bridges and he cut down mountains and he made a beautiful road system that allowed for when the fullness of time was come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. All those roads allowed for the rapid spread of the Christian message all around the empire. 
So this beautiful road system that the Romans created not only allowed, for the obvious reason, the soldiers to get around very quickly, but it immediately created a, a, a national highway system that goods, transportation could flow freely. So it tremendously helps the economy, and anyone who wanted to travel could now use these beautiful new roads, which Paul did over and over again, spreading the gospel uh, and training other men to travel around and train the gospel. And that Roman peace in transportation was not just limited to the land, but it was also extended to the sea. So the pirates were eliminated, and sea travel was made uh, very realistic and very plausible. Be other than the forces of nature, you could travel now safely all around the sea. But the forces of nature were something to be contended with. So in the Mediterranean Sea for about five months, all through the long late fall, winter, and early spring, it was too dangerous to travel. Well, if you circled around uh, anywhere from, let's say, Israel over to Asia Minor, Turkey, over to Greece, and you come around, you want to hug the land as much as possible in these little boats, right? You don't want to go out in the open sea. And the last place that you would leave to sort of shoot under the island of Corfu to go across to Italy was Nicopolis. And there was a nice big bay there. And so during the winter, that would be filled up with boats with ships that had to spend the whole winter there. Now suddenly you got a whole bunch of sailors sitting in the city, fixing their, you know, the rigging, plugging up the holes, and they're just working on the boats, but they're bored, right? They're sitting around the city all winter long, and Paul sees this as a great missional opportunity. Titus, come with me to Nicopolis because we can share Christ with a lot of guys here over the winter. And when winter breaks and they got their new sails all fitted and the rigging is replaced and these boats are ready to go, these sailors are going to go all out to every point in the Roman Empire. And if they know Jesus, get what, guess what message? They're going to be taken all around to the Roman Empire. So this was very, it wasn't just like a detail, oh, we're going to spend the winter in Nicopolis, we'll be sitting by the fire drinking our hot chocolate. Paul wanted some time to spend with his young church planters to talk about mission strategy, but also to do mission work while they were resting there. So this is what Preveza looks like today, Nicopolis, the big bay is on the left. Um, it's a beautiful place right now, there's about a half a mile of this marina right here, and on the one side, the land side, is all coffee shops and pizza places, and yes, we did go there a couple of times in the evening and enjoy those coffee And the left side is the bay, and of course the modern yachts are there now. Across the bay is the marina of Cleopatra. And uh, this provided a great base for us this summer to distribute Bibles. As I mentioned before, we, we distribute 130,000 Bibles from all over the world. People come to help us do that. And uh, you could do that this summer. Come to Greece and hand out Bibles for 10 days. And uh, we go and we drive and we find little villages like this. This one I remember because it was up near the Albanian border. And you may spend several hours in the car driving to, to your villages you get out and you go uh, door to door to hand out Bibles. We have nice little packets that we put on the door. I see you can read Greek, right? 
Proseis kilos. Beware of dog. It's, that's a universal message. Um, if that's all Greek to you, that's beware of dog, right? Oh, by the way, guess what the Greeks say? Because they can't say it's all Greek to me, right? That wouldn't mean they, they say kinika. They say it's all Chinese to me. <laughs> so we go and we put the, uh, the, uh, the nice uh, Bible packet on the door. Uh, we purposely don't engage the people, uh, knock on their door and tell them, we have a gift for you because the priest has told them, don't take the Bibles. So we leave them on the door, and then when nobody's looking, they come out and they take the Bibles and they bring them in their house. So it's a, it's a lot of fun uh, to, to, to do that. Uh, and then in the evenings, we meet in a big tent, and we, have, uh, we get into God's Word, and we uh, have good worship. So it was pretty exciting this summer. My son Andrew, who's a graduate of the school here, he and his wife, they live in Cyprus, and they came and they led worship. So it was the first time that I'd uh, preached and my son was on the stage and then today I get to speak and my daughter and my son-in-law are here uh, um, helping to lead helping John lead worship and so it's fun to share that pulpit with them and so we have uh, we have a service that's in Greek and English everything's translated to one or the other as the case uh, may be and um, this is just a shot of some friends of mine. The girl on the left is a Romanian girl. Her name is Dumi, and she has come to Greece to help work with refugee women. And as I said, many of these women, as they're given clothing, as they're given food, as their children are given medical care, they always ask, why? Man, when we were, going, when we were leaving as refugees and we went through, through uh, Turkey, none of the Muslims were helping us. None of the Muslims were providing for our needs. And suddenly we come to Greece, and all you people are helping us. Why? And so it's this wonderful opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ. And out from the oppression of living in these Muslim countries, when they get to a country like Greece, where you have religious freedom, they are free now to talk, and they want to talk. They want to talk about faith. And they want to talk about why Jesus, who is Jesus. So that's pretty exciting. The man in the middle, his name is Mehran. He is from uh, Iran. He uh, was a diving, so di with tanks, you know, deep-sea diver, diver. He was a diver and a diving instructor. And he was one of my first students um, in the Discipleship Training Center. And he now um, evangelizes every week. He gets on his phone, and he has a Bible study back in Iran uh, with new believers. It started out as unbelievers. Now they're new believers and he's discipling them. So that's pretty exciting. And then the guy on the right is a Greek guy and his uh, name is, uh, really, I'm not kidding, his name is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with Emmanuel, his name is. And he is, he's our translator and he's one of our church planters and we're very excited about him. So I, I just love this picture uh, sort of representing the spectrum. So, what does all this mean for us? <laughs> Especially that bit about Nicopolis, right? And I'm I was thinking about the small group community leaders because uh, you guys have to pull together a, like a study for the week based on the sermon. And you're probably sitting there, oh my word, what in the world are we going to talk about, right? So I have uh, some suggestions. What does Nicopolis mean to us? You're taking notes, good. Yeah, well I'm going to help you right here. What does Nicopolis teach us? And get involved in a community group, please. Um, well, first of all, Scripture's deep. Scripture's deep. 
Uh, there are no meaningless or wasted details in the Bible. You don't have to know all the details. The message, the central message of Scripture is very clear. Co- scholars call it the perspicuity of the Scriptures. I have no idea why would you would use such a complicated word to say something is simple. But that's what that means, the perspicuity of the Scripture. The Bible is clear. The central message is clear. God loves you. You don't please God as a sinner, so God does something about it. He sends His Son to die for your sin. You can be forgiven for your sin. You can have life in Jesus and spend eternity with Him. And how to live a God, everything that's essential, everything that's necessary, everything that's important is clear in the Bible. And yet the Scripture is very, very rich. You can study it as deep as you want to, and you will never be disappointed. I'm something of a Bible nerd. I love to study all the details of the Scripture, and I'm never disappointed. And I look at something like Nicopolis, and I say, wow, that was what God was orchestrating to bring about the census that got Joseph and Mary out of uh, Nazareth and into Bethlehem. It was a place where uh, uh, Octavian became the, the Augustus, Caesar Augustus, so that we could have, in those days, world peace for the easy spread of the gospel in that first century. And uh, it's a place where Paul could do some church planning strategy. Um, So it shows us that God was masterminding the first coming of Jesus Christ in details in ways that we weren't even aware of. And even as we look into one, deeper into one detail, we, we don't know, we're not even aware of how much God did to orchestrate that a virgin would conceive and have a son And that son could grow up to be uh, our savior. But God is also masterminding his second coming. And I'm excited because 2020, isn't that a cool, I mean 2019 was hard to say, 2020, isn't that a cool year? I wish I was graduating this year. I wish I was graduating high school for a lot of reasons. If you're a high school graduate, you're lucky man, 2020, that's the coolest year. Maybe this is the year that Jesus comes. So I'm excited about 2020, and God is preparing His coming. He put a whole lot of preparation into the first coming. He's putting a whole lot of preparation into the second coming. We look at the news, and we see, oh my word, what is going on? You look at Fox News, you look at MSNBC, you look at CNN. I watch the BBC and think, oh my word, this world is spinning out of control. It is not spinning out of control. It's spinning into control, into God's control. Everything that's happening today is preparing for Jesus' second coming. So keep your eyes on Jesus. And get excited about what's happening in the world today. Yes, it's very wicked. It's very simple, but it's all leading to Jesus. Yes, we need a lot of prayer. Pray, pray for our political leaders, pray for our world leaders, pray for safety of of all of us, but be excited that all of this is being orchestrated for the coming of the King of Kings, and so we can be reaching out. God's master plan is missional. Paul wanted to meet with Titus there in Nicopolis so that he could talk about church planning and so that he could witness to sailors who would then go out to all uh, over the nation. And God's heartbeat always is missional. Sharing Jesus Christ, the only voice of truth, 
the only voice of peace and the only voice of hope. And that's the message that we have to share in 2020. I have an assignment for you because I am a teacher. So maybe this afternoon, before or after the football game, or while your husband's watching the football game, whatever, just kind of breeze through Titus. It's only three, three chapters. And, and maybe just get a little idea. What, what did Paul want to talk to Titus about there as they were spending the winter in the mild climate of Western uh, Greece? And maybe you can talk about this in your community groups too. If you, uh, it's just a suggestion, read through the book of Titus and kind of look at, look at some of the things that were on Paul's heart that probably could be on our heart again today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your love to us. Thank you, God, that you are the mastermind behind everything that's happening in the world then and in the world today. That political leaders who are so full of themselves and who think they're, 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 they're manipulating and they're maneuvering and they're politicizing to their own ends, but they're actually just pawns in your hand. And even though they stand against you, and even though they raise their fists up to you, and even though they slay your servants, Father, they're simply pawns in your hand. And every wickedness and, and, and every evil will be defeated by Jesus Christ. So we honor you, we worship you, we praise you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Thy kingdom come, in Jesus' name, amen.